name is Michael Tuck, and I'm the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. We finally arrived after several months of being in Peter. We, we've arrived to the end of our study. Today we're going to finish Peter's letter. As I said last week, as, as Pete begins to wrap up this letter, I am conjecturing here, but I believe that as he begins to bring his missive to an end, he starts just things that he wants to say at the end of the letter. They're just coming out. And I told you last week that I think there's six different kind of subject matters that he touches on in these final closing verses. And, uh, and I've kind of distilled all six of those down into, into a thought or into an exhortation or into an encouragement. And I entitled each one of them uh, about doing something well. In other words, I think Peter's Peter's closing thoughts are, do this well, do this well. And uh, last week, we started off with lead well. The first subject matter that he seems to touch on as he's closing is this idea of leading. And we devoted an entire, we devoted an entire Sunday to that. I'm going to deal with the other five of those uh, encouragements this morning. But last week, we, we just dealt with the leadership one. And we enumerated several qualities that I, I said would help us lead well. Now, these are going to just be my titles. These are not what Peter's entitled to anything, but these are just my titles to his six closing exhortations. And this next one, I had a hard time titling it. Uh, I am calling this, la- this next encouragement an encouragement to live well. So we've got an encouragement to lead well, and now we've got an encouragement to live well. And I, I really struggled on what to call it because I think I could have easily have called it follow well. Uh, you know, that could have been the title. But it, this seems to me this next subject that he's closing with or he wants to talk about as he closes is broader than just the idea of following. So I'm calling it live well, but yet there's two aspects to this living well that Peter's going to touch on. So let's see if we can note them together. The first one is, as I just mentioned, that we are to be subject to those in authority over us. If we're going to live well, we've got to be willing to follow well. We've got to be willing to be subject to those in leadership. So in verse 5 of chapter 5, it says, in the the same way you who are younger be subject to the elders. Now in the same way, in the same way as what? In the same way as I exhorted the elders, now I'm exhorting you younger men. You remember that the word elder actually means older man, but we said that it's come to refer to a title as well. It's come to mean a title of leadership in the church. And though I'm very convinced that in the first four verses, Peter is addressing not just older men in general, but to older men who are serving in a leadership capacity. I think in this next verse, he's really juxtaposing young men with old men. In other words, people who are not leading, who are supposed to be following, he says, follow well. I want to say to you that if we're going to live well, we've got to learn to follow whoever we are. We've got to learn to follow those in authority over us. Now, some of us in our culture have suggested that 
uh, elders as in leadership can't be young men. Others in our culture have said you can't be, you can't lead anymore if you're old. Uh, I, you know, I found this illustration. It's not a Christian illustration. I thought it was humorous. I found it a couple of weeks ago and it related to, uh, to our own election. But some of you may remember Reagan running against Mondale years ago. And Reagan, I think at the time, was one of the oldest, if not the oldest man running for president when he was running for president. And his, uh, and it's sort of like in this president election, he got absent-minded a couple times. He lost his thoughts in, uh, in, in, in when he was talking. And people were saying he was too old to be president. And so at the next debate, he knew it was coming up. Some of you will remember this. Mondale was going to pounce on that. And uh, Reagan's aides kept telling him, you got to be ready for this. You got to be ready for this. And he kept saying, I've got it. I've got it. He'd never tell him what he was he was going to do, but he kept saying, I got it. So sure enough, at the debate, Mondale leads out and says, uh, you know, don't you think you're too old to be president? And Reagan came back with this. I will not make age an issue of this campaign. I am not going to exploit for political purposes my opponent's youth and inexperience. Of course, Mondale was a super old man himself at the time, right? Um, when the Bible speaks of elders, I don't believe it's excluding young men. I mean, this is kind of a tangent side note, but I don't believe God is excluding young men from serving. In fact, Paul would write a letter to Timothy, his protege, who was pastoring probably the, one of the most significant churches in Asia, Asia Minor at the time. And he said specifically to him, don't let anybody look down on, uh, on your youthfulness. So I don't think youth chronologically is a disqualifier, though I do believe that elders in leadership need to be men who are mature, spiritually mature, emotionally mature, relationally mature. Uh, and most of the time that comes with some chronological age, right? It, you need to have some chronological age for that uh, to be true. But in this particular case, living well, and, and living well meaning to submit to those in leadership over us or to follow well, I don't think this is talking about age. I think this is talking about all of us, whatever your age is. If you are under authority, to live well means to be subject to those in authority over us. Have we so easily forgotten what Peter said just, just a page or so earlier in his letter? Now, for us, it was weeks ago, right? But just a page earlier in his letter, this is what he says. Submit to every human authority because of the Lord, whether to the emperor as a supreme authority or to the governors as to those sent out by him to punish those who do what is evil and to praise those who do what is good. For it is God's will that you silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. Submit as free people, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but as God's slave. Honor everyone. Love the brothers and sisters. Fear God. Honor the emperor. That was Peter, the same guy who's now telling young men be in submission to uh, the elders. He's, he's calling all of us to submit to those in authority over us. The Apostle Paul said something, if you can remember back, it's not been that long ago, we talked about this then, but Paul says something similar. Let everyone submit to the governing authorities since there is no authority except from God and the authorities that exist are instituted by God. It is amazing, isn't it, how hard it is to submit to authority over us. Let's just all shoot straight. Let's be honest. It's really hard to be in submission to those who are over us, especially when we don't agree with them, especially when we don't necessarily think they are right. Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve couldn't even submit to the greatest, most perfect authority over them, who was God himself, and they couldn't even submit to him. And before we're throwing stones at Adam and Eve, let's just all say, you know, 
we don't submit to God either, who is the greatest and most benevolent and, and, and good and kind leader over us. We don't submit to him either. Submission is hard. But to live well, Peter's telling his listeners, his readers, you need to learn to submit. And I said there's two parts to this, and this is why I didn't just call this follow well or submit, because here's the second part. The second part in living well involves not just submitting to authority over us, but it involves being humble of heart. In fact, I want to su- suggest to you that submission comes or flows from the humility of our heart. So here's what Peter says. All of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. This is just right after the verse where he says, young men, submit to, to your elders. All of you. Now, it's, now he's broadening the scope of his words. All of you clothe yourself with humility towards one another because God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that he may exalt you at the proper time. John MacArthur says that uh, humility is the foundation of all graces and the very center of the Christian life. John Calvin quotes, or says of humility, I quote him, the sovereign virtue, humility is the sovereign virtue, the mother and root of all other virtues. Jonathan Edwards said humility is the most essential thing in true religion. I have found personally that humility is the most, if not, it's the opposite of pride. And they say pride is the greatest sin, right? And so I would say that humility is one of the greatest, if not the greatest virtue of all. And Jesus epitomized it for us. He absolutely lived it out for us because the God of the universe was willing to humble himself, okay, listen to this, and become one of his creatures and then submit himself to his creatures. So when when God says live well, and he means by that submit to those in authority over you, he's saying to all of us, listen, do what I have done. Do what I have modeled for you. Now, I, you know, I, I, I want to be practical for us and not just, uh, you know, have these lofty words. So if I could, I'd like to offer three suggestions to us this morning on how to cultivate humility in our lives. And I don't, hopefully these will be practical. Here's the first one. You know, you cultivate humility in your life by practicing humil- humility in the little things. And when I mean little things, I'm, I'm talking about little things like saying thank you. You know why thank you is an act of humility? Because you're acknowledging that you're dependent on somebody else or somebody did something good for you or somebody invested in your life. So just doing little things like expressing gratefulness and saying thank you is a way of, I believe, cultivating humility in the little things. Be a good listener. Be a good listener is a way of cultivating humility in the little things. Own your mistakes quickly. When you mess up, don't try to cover up your mistakes. Own them. Confess them. Acknowledge them. Give in to your spouse the next time instead of fighting for your rights. Here's my second suggestion, and it would be this one. Climb to the bottom rung of the ladder, not the top, to be the servant to others. In other words, make haste to the bottom of the ladder and not try to run up the ladder. Humility is forged 
I might suggest that humility is forged in the act of actually being a servant. Now, let's be honest. We all, as, as believers and followers of Jesus, we recognize that servanthood is important, right? Jesus is our, he was, he, what does he say? You know, serve others like, like I have, given my life a ransom for, for us. We, the call to servanthood, we all know it. And we all want to be known as a servant. We don't want to be known as an arrogant person. Can I say this, though? But servants, servants are the guys who do the hard work. And we want to be known as a servant, but not so much want to do the hard work of a servant. We, we don't want to have to give up our, our rights or and rights, not the right word. I'm talking about choosing to put ourselves out so as to help someone else. That's what servanthood is. It's, it's, a, it's a matter of me putting myself out to help someone else and serve someone else, to, to lift them up, if you would. And let's be honest, guys, it's really, you know, we're pretty selfish and it's hard to do that, especially when we don't think it's all, maybe what they want's not all that important. We think it's not important. So we don't want to, we don't want to put ourselves out for what we think is not important or something you can do tomorrow kind of deal. So how, how do we cultivate humility? By doing it in the little things, by just practicing the little things. And then, I think, by actually living out servanthood. And, and then the third thing I wrote down as far as how to live this out or how to develop humility in our lives, and that's ruthlessly being honest and evaluating ourselves. In other words, being, being truthful about me and about my, about my problems. No, nothing will cultivate humility more than being truthful about myself. But here's the problem with that. It's really hard to do that, isn't it? It's really easy for me to see all of your faults. Just as like I know it's really easy for you to see all of my faults, right? And I'm sure you see them and you talk about them at lunch and all that kind of good stuff, right? Um, but that's all right. We talk about your faults at lunch too. <laughs> No, I'm teasing, but you know what I'm trying to say, isn't it? That it's really easy to see the faults in someone else, but we're just absolutely blind to our own. So if you want to cultivate a humble heart, you've got to find a way to evaluate yourself honestly. And, uh, you know, and I think the key to that, and, and, and even as I'm suggesting this practically, I know it's still very, very hard to do, is you have to give people permission to help you see what you cannot see. You have, to, you have to help people. You have to give them permission. I, and in fact, I, I think it's going to be more. Because a lot of times I would like to tell people something. And I would actually, I actually would like you to tell me something. But I'd like to tell you something, but I don't necessarily think you're open to it. And if I don't think you're open to it or that you want to hear it, I'm not going to tell you. Because it costs too, yeah, it costs too much. Because if you don't want to hear it, then you'll be angry with me. You'll write me off. You'll, you'll see me as arrogant. You'll see me as trying to hurt you. Well, none of that's true. But, but I don't want to pay the cost of that. So I have to have a lot of freedom. I have to have a lot of sense that you would really like to see, know what I see, right? Even if you don't necessarily agree with me, you'd still like to know what I... I unless I have that absolute freedom, I am not going to, not going to speak up to that. Uh, Ann and I were driving in... Uh, in our car the other day, and she goes, man, this car has a blind spot. And I said, what do you mean? She says, well, I knew there was a car there, and I looked in my mirrors, I didn't see it, I kind of turned my head, and I was about to go over, and I looked back, and there it was, and it was just in my blind spot, and I couldn't see it. 
I mean, that's how most of us are, being honest. That's how most of us are. We have blind spots, and there's things that creep up in our character and our lives that we just, we can't see them, and we need somebody else to look and, and point, uh, point them out. Your willingness to humble yourself and submit yourself to your spouse or to your parents, young people, to your parents, to uh, those in authority over your governor, your president, if we're willing to do that, here, look at what, go back to the text and look what Peter says. There's two benefits in that. One of them is this. God, or here's, there's, there's a benefit and there's a, uh, no, actually there's two benefits. God resists the one who doesn't submit, but gives grace to the humble. So there's the first benefit. If you and I are willing to humble ourselves so as to be able to submit to those in leadership, he says, God's going to, God says, I'm going to give you grace for that. I'm, I'm, if you're willing to do that, I'll give you grace. But I'm going to resist you if that's not you. If you're not willing to humble yourself, I'm going to resist you. And then the other benefit is, he says, and in due season, God will exalt, uh, exalt you. God will exalt the humble. So, you know, as much as we may not like to humble ourselves and submit to those, and again, I'm entitling this live well. This is how we live like Jesus, right? Live well. You know, if you're willing to do that, God says in due season, I will uh, I will exalt you. I will lift you up. And, um, you know, I look forward to that. Not to being exalted over you, but I look forward to Jesus recognizing my faithfulness or your faithfulness. Don't you? Don't you look forward to the day where Jesus recognizes? No, no, I'm not talking about exalting. When it says, I don't think Peter means that he's going to exalt me over any of you. He's just going to, he's just going to exalt you. He's going to, God's going to acknowledge that you did and you lived like he wanted you to live. You lived, you lived well. So lead well, live well. The next thing I think as he's closing is, I'm going to call this one rest well. And it's verse seven, casting all your cares on him because he cares for you. So he's just got this thing about submission and humbling ourselves. Now he says, cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. It's just a one statement. It's just a one line statement. There's no more to it than that. Um, don't, he says, don't forget that in the midst of all of your life, don't forget to rest in Jesus. And it's funny, we read the text when we're praying on Sunday mornings at eight. We always read the text, thanks to Jill, it was Jill's idea. So we always read the text that's coming up from Sunday morning, and we use it as the basis for our prayers. And I think where the first prayer this morning, after reading the text, was Lou's. And Lou, Lou picked this part of the text and, and, you know, it was just, and it is so casting all your cares on him because he cares about you. I mean, what a great word for us. A great word, by the way, Ernest, too, and what you read. I mean, in this time where it just feels like everything is, is just falling apart, we don't need to forget that Jesus cares for us. And so you and I need to take our burdens and our, and our anxieties and we need to cast them on him. So if you're burdened, if you're scared, if you're upset, if you're discouraged, or even if you're depressed, take it to Jesus. That's kind of like a song, right? Take it to Jesus and leave it there. My brother, uh, one of my brothers, you know, we have a brother's text. And I mean, he has been just shooting me text after text after, not me, our, our brother group, text after text, a video after video about the election, about this. He's just so distressed over the election, as I know some of you are. But I finally had, had enough, and I wrote my brother on the brother text. I said, stop, stop. 
None of this is going to make any difference. And all you're doing is you're just working yourself up into some frenzy and, and just rest. I think it was maybe it's because I was going through this text this week. I wrote, I said, just rest. Cast all your anxiety and your care about the election and about what's going to happen in the future. Cast it on Jesus and trust him and rest in him because he cares for you. Now, it's not easy to give up worry. And some of you might even be saying to yourself, it's impossible for me not to worry. I disagree. And the reason I disagree is because there's a verb in this text. And Peter says, cast, a verb, cast, do it, your choice. You can cast your anxieties on Jesus and stop worrying about it. And just let him just let him carry you with whatever is going to be. You don't have to fret over tomorrow. The fourth do well is resist well. And I love the fact that Peter, again, isn't trying to sugarcoat the difficulties of life. And uh, so he, uh, he, he has repeated this theme throughout the whole letter, hasn't he? You're going to suffer. You're going to suffer. Now, we as Western Christians, we seem to suffer a lot less, I think, than, than, than many believers, many of our brothers and sisters around the world. We're going to suffer still. And so he has something to say. And, and, and if, I was to, if, you, if I was to put a title on this, it would be resist well. Verse 8. Look at your text. Be sober-minded. Be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. Resist him firm in the faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. Now, did you notice that first part, verse 8, be sober-minded? I mean, there's that call again to think straight, to have your, have your thought processes in the right order. That's the third time in this letter he's used that phrase. The first time he said, you know, be sober-minded, and the purpose was that we might be fixated on our hope, on the hope that's coming. The second time it was that you might pray. He says, be sober-minded so that you might be a praying person. And then this last time, it's be alert. It's be sober-minded so that you might be alert. And Peter says here, acknowledges that we have an adversary. You have an adversary. I have an adversary. We all have an adversary. There are spiritual forces that don't want you to walk in faith. They don't want you to love God. They don't want you to follow Jesus. They don't want you to live a consequential uh, life for God. And they're going to be working against you. And Peter likens our adversary to a lion seeking to devour his prey. You've probably heard this. I may have even preached it in the past that... He's a roaring lion, he's an old lion, you know, and all he can do is roar so the pride, then, you know, he scares the prey into, you know. It is true that greater is us, greater is, in, greater is he who is in us than our adversary, right? That's true. But why are we watering this down? I mean, according to this, Peter says we have an adversary who's like a roaring lion seeking who he can devour. So I would say the enemy wants to destroy you. And if that doesn't mean kill you, it at least means ruin you. It, mean, it means take you out so you're of no, no benefit to the kingdom of God. So we've got an enemy that's like that. And here's, the, here's Peter's command as he's closing this letter. Resist him! Be sober-minded. Be alert so that you can defy him. But he tells us how to defy him. Did you see how to defy him? How to, how to beat him? Let's go back and look at it. He says, resist him. Firm in faith. Firm in faith. 
So how do we resist him? That's the thing here. How do we resist him? We, we resist him through our faith. So again, let me be practical. And let me just offer you three really, these are just Jimmy sitting down at his desk saying, well, how do you cultivate faith? And these are the three things I want to suggest to you. Number one, read your Bible. <laughs> read your Bible. You know, the Bible says that God says in his Bible that he gave us the Bible so as to increase your faith. Remember this from John's gospel? Here's John. And these things are written to you that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John says, I'm writing what I'm writing so that you might believe, so that you might have faith. How about Paul? Here's Paul in Romans chapter 10. So faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So if you want to strengthen your faith, I mean, it's not that hard. Read your Bible, get to know your Bible, study your Bible, listen to people teach you the Bible, however you want to do it. But God has given us a book to increase your faith. How do you resist the adversary who's trying to destroy you. Well, you read God's book and it increases your faith. Here's another suggestion. Surround yourself with people of faith. I think this is one of the most insightful sayings regarding us as people. Show me your friends and I will show you your future. Hey, here's, here's a motivational speaker, Jim Rohn. I don't know who he is. I just read this quote from him, but I thought it was a pretty, pretty good quote. He says, you are the average Listen, you are the average of the five people you spend the most time with. Think about that. I, I, I think that's, that's kind of true. That the people, the five people that I spend the most time, maybe it's six, maybe it's four, I, you know, but the people that I spend the most time with, those are the people I become like. So it's a simple fact that you, you kind of morph yourself into the, to the people that you hang around with. King Solomon said it this way in the Proverbs, walk with the wise and become wise. Associate with fools and get in trouble. Walk with people, the people you walk with, that's who you're going to become like. So if you want to increase faith, surround yourself by faithful people. If you, if you want to grow in your faith, if you want to cultivate faith so that you can resist the enemy, hang around people that are filled with faith. That, that just, you know, there's just something about them. They trust in God. And, and here's something else I thought about this. I don't necessarily have to hang around people personally to be, to be inspired by their faith. And here's what I mean by that. I, I remember as a young Christian, I read a lot of Christian biographies. I read Christian testimonies of faithful men and women who just turned the world upside down. I remember reading Don Richardson, missionary to... Uh, Papua New Guinea, I think it was, or Iri and Jaya, one or the other, and in, in his in his peace child. And I mean, I read I read biography after biography of mission men and women, like the one that Michael Lane did not too long ago. John something I can't remember, um, but you know all the biographies. Man, read the testimonies of men of faith, so that your faith will increase as you see their faith and you, you live their faith with them. It's vicarious living, but as you live their faith with them. But here and now, right around you, surround yourself with people that are filled with faith. That's why it's important, I think, to be a part of a church family. It's why God's called us not to be lone ranger Christians. He's called us to walk with other brothers and sisters so their faith can inspire us. And my third thing was use your faith. 
Use your faith. Nothing will grow your faith like using your faith. Faith has been called a muscle, right? People have said faith is like a muscle. So if I sit on the couch, we all know where my muscles are going, right? But if I get off the couch and get on the treadmill and I resist, my, I put resistance against my muscles, they're going to grow. They're going to strengthen. Same thing's true with faith. If you operate in faith, your faith will grow. Your, your faith will strengthen. I, you know, I can share my faith today and I can do it, and I can do it pretty easily. It's, it's, not, it's not scary to me anymore. It's, uh, you know, why? Because the first time was terrifying. But I exercised faith, and, and, and it grew my faith. In earnest, the more you pray for us, the less fearful this desk will be. Not that you shouldn't always be respectful of it, but the less fearful it'll be, the more you exercise your faith. So here's my simple, those are my simple suggestions on how to grow your faith. Read your Bible, hang around people with faith, and then use your faith and see, and see God grow it. And, uh, and, and I think it's pretty clear that Peter's implying resist him in your minds. The, you, where, where do we resist the enemy? Resist him, the adversary in our minds, mostly. Because he says, what does he say at the very end of that text? He says to them, let me go back. He says, resist him firm in faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. And, and so he's basically saying, in your mind, remember, guys, you're not alone. This is, God, this is what happened to God's people around the world. So resist him, fight against him, filled with faith. Filled with faith. Now, number five, and uh, he says that, and this is his fifth encouragement as he's closing. He says, hope well. Oh, this is why I'm calling this one Hope Well. And when I wrote that down, the first thought I had was, man, do y'all think Hope Well was called because somebody tried to name that city or that town Hope Well, you know? So some of you might recognize the Hope Well H up there, right? So, uh, but anyway, it's Hope Well. Hope strongly. Hope consistently. Verse 10. The, uh, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, establish, strengthen, support you after you have suffered a little while. To him be dominion forever. Amen. And I, I, I distilled that to this title. Peter is saying, hope well, in spite of what you're suffering. Hope, hope in what God's going to do. And then he tells us four things God's going to do. And this is what we should hope well in. Number first, number one, he says is hope Hope well in the truth that God is going to restore you. All right? God's going to restore you. And that word means to make complete or to mend. And um, so this is not a promise for now, guys. This is a promise for later. Uh, when, when God in his eternal glory is going to uh, pronounce or, or, or bring Christ again and set up the kingdom. He, he's pointing to that. He says God's going to restore you. Restore could mean he's going to restore everything you've lost in this world, right? Like your position and your, you remember Jesus told Peter and them, hey, nobody's lost houses and money, whatever, that God's not going to restore it tenfold. But what I think, I, this is just Jimmy, so I'll just take it for that. I think the restoring is speaking of God restoring us in the resurrection. He's going to restore us body, soul. We're going to be restored. And our hope is in the resurrection. We are going to live again. And our hope is that, and our hope is that God is going to restore us 2.0, body 2.0, right? Remember 1 Corinthians 15? You're sowing this body and it in its corruption, you're sowing it to the ground, but it'll be raised incorruptible. 
You know, I mean, a, a new version that doesn't die in a different version. And, I, you know, you know, when Apple comes out with this next version of whatever, we have absolutely no idea what's going to be in that. Right. And I don't know that we know what's going to be in version 2.0 of us, but it's going to be good. It's going to be good. Established. Hope well in the, in the fact he says he's going to establish you. And that word there means to make stable, to set in place, to fix firmly. And I think here God's got the promise of immortality in mind. The fact that, that when he restores us, we're fixed. Life is never going to end anymore. Hope well, he says, that God's going to strengthen you. In that word, to cause someone to become more able or capable with the implication of a contrast with weakness to make more able, to make strong. If I'm right that Peter's looking to the resurrection, if I'm right in that, then I would say that Peter's talking about here is looking to the fact that in the resurrection we won't sin anymore. We're not going to have a weak we're not going to have a weak self anymore that's given and prone towards sin. We're going to be raised to never sin again, to be strong in the Lord, to be like the Lord in that, sealed in righteousness. And the final one was support you. Support you. Here the idea gives, it's the idea of a foundation. There's going to be a foundation under us. And again, in that same theme, looking to the return of Christ and our resurrection, I thought maybe this means when he says God's going to support us in the future, maybe it's going to mean that we're not going to walk by faith anymore, but we're going to walk by sight. We're not going to walk by, you know, right now. And I'm not trying to minimize faith because the Bible says faith is our assurance and our conviction of things hoped for, things not seen. So I'm not trying to necessarily minimize faith. But I am telling you there's going to be a difference when we're not walking by faith and we get to see with our physical eyeballs and we get to hear with our physical eardrums. I'm assuming our new, our new bodies and new cells will have all of that. But we will, we will experience the physical presence of God and, and we will see him as he is and it will be confirmed by our, by our sight. So hope well, everyone, in what God has promised. Let me read that again. It's worth reading again. The God of all grace who called you into his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore you and establish you and strengthen you and support you after you have suffered a little while. Yeah, you're going to suffer. But after you've suffered a little while, and it's little compared to eternity, he will do all that for us. And then Peter breaks out in that praise to God uh, be the glory, to him be the dominion, the power forever and ever. Amen. Should close right there, right? But oops, I forgot something. So he continues on. And that brings us to our last encouragement. And that is to stand well. And again, I mean, this is just some closing personal remarks. But there is in this last one, there is an exhortation and encouragement to stand well. Verse 12, through Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I consider him, I have written to you briefly in order to encourage you and to testify that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. 
There's his last encouragement. Stand firm in it. Stand well. Now, Silvanus, also known as Silas in our Bible, is Peter's secretary. Or maybe it's Peter's courier. I, think, I happen to think he's probably both. That he's helping Peter write the letter, and then he's going to deliver the letter. But it could have been either one of those. Through, si- through Silvanus, a faithful brother I've written to you, mean, could mean he's going to carry it. Could mean that uh, Silas wrote it. Silas wrote a lot of letters for Peter. I mean, for Paul. So he's probably writing here. And I thought also, what a tight Christian community they had, right? I mean, it's spread out all over Asia Minor, but Silas been with Paul many, many times, and here he's with Peter in prison. And so what a, what a tight community they had. And Peter, as he's writing, he says, I, he tells them why he wrote this letter. And he wrote it for two reasons, he said. One was to encourage them in the grace of God. You see that in the text? I wrote you to encourage you in the grace of God. And then he says, but I also wrote to you to testify to the grace of God in my life. I've written you for both of those purposes. And then his final exhortation is stand firm in the grace of God. Stand firm. What does that mean, stand firm in the grace of God? And again, I mean, this is the Bible, this is the Bible reader's job, especially being so many centuries, millennium, actually removed from when Peter wrote it. What, what did he mean by stand firm? I'm going to offer you two suggestions of what he means when he says stand firm. Here's the first one. Stand firm in God's grace means don't get lost in your own self-effort. So, We all recognize today that it's all about God's goodness, his grace, his kindness, his promises, his character, his gift to us. Not not based on merit or, or our own achievements, but rather based on his kindnesses, which he chooses to give to us, not on the basis of what we do, but on the basis of faith, on the basis that we... What, what, is, what does the writer of Hebrews say? Without faith, it's impossible to please God because the one who comes to him must believe that he exists. So faith is believing that God exists and that he's a rewarder of those who seek him and it's seeking him. So if we, if we trust in God and seek after him, God in his grace gives us life and gives us all good things based on, based on his kindnesses, not on our effort, right? So I think when, when Peter says, Stay, I, I wrote you to encourage you in God's grace, and I wrote you to be a, a testimony of how God has been gracious to me. And by the way, he's, he's the guy that really failed, right? God was really gracious to him, not on merit, but just on God's gracious kindness because of Peter's heart. And so he says, I'm writing you and I'm saying, stand firm. And I think he means, don't get lost in your own efforts. Don't get lost in this somehow being about how good you are, how hard you try, or what you've managed to accomplish in and of yourself. But the second thing I think he means is, stand firm in God's grace and don't fall away from God's grace either. Be faithful, be steadfast, be unmovable, as Paul would say at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. After he's talked about God's grace in the resurrection, he says, be steadfast. Be so I think Peter's saying the same, those, those two things to us. Stand firm. Don't get lost over here in your effort. But, but stay faithful to the Lord. Don't get lost over here in unfaithfulness either. Stay the course. Stand firm in God's goodness and God's grace. I'm reminded of Paul's words to the Ephesian church. You'll know this. Finally, be strengthened in the Lord by his vast strength. 
Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavenlies. For this reason, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the evil day. There's that word resist. Resist in the evil day. And having prepared everything to take your stand, stand therefore. So I think it's the same. Peter's got the same idea that Paul has. Do all you can do. Look at the armor that God's given you. Trust all. But at the end of the day, just stand firm. Don't give in. Don't give way. And that was Peter's final thought, if you would. Stand firm. Then he has a closing remark. There's no exhortation in this. Well, I guess there really is. Verse 13. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, as does Mark, my son. Some have suggested that this is Peter's actual wife and actual son, that he's sending greetings from his wife who was in Babylon and his, his son Mark. But most commentators say, no, that's not his, it's not like talking about his wife. He's talking about the church that was in Babylon. The she there, the church is often referred to as she. And he's writing to these believers. He's writing from the church there that where he's a part. She and Mark is probably not his, his biological son, but Mark is probably the John Mark that was with Paul and Barnabas on the first missionary trip and fell away. Remember, he, he failed. I had this thought. I don't know if it's true. It doesn't say so anywhere that I know of. It doesn't say in the Bible. But it might say somewhere in the extra biblical writings. But, you know, it's been known that John Mark was, became Peter's protege, that he hung out with Peter, and that actually the gospel of Mark, it's the gospel of John Mark, that the gospel of Mark is, is Peter's recollections where Mark wrote it down. And it's believed to be, I think, the oldest of the gospels. But here's my thought. Do you think Peter could have gone and found John Mark after he failed to tell him, hey, man, it's okay? Could it be that Peter, because of his own big failure, you know, went and found John Mark and said, hey, you come with me, man. We're, we're, you're all right, bro. I mean, this happens, this happens to, this can happen to any of us. You're all right. And I wonder if that's why John Mark became so close to Peter historically is because of that. Babylon is most certainly Rome here. Uh, she who is in Babylon, whether it's Peter's wife or whether it's the church, Babylon is most uh, definitively a reference to Rome as Babylon is used to refer to Rome in the scriptures, especially in the book of Revelation. Verse 14, greet one another with a kiss of love. I guess there's that final exhortation. Should have made a seventh point. Uh, Peace to all of you who are in Messiah. Greet one another tenderly, he says. Greet one another with affection. And uh, boy, in this day of pandemic, I thought about that. That's really hard, isn't it? We're not even supposed to be together, much less touch one another, much less greet one another with uh, any kind of kiss. Not even a handshake. We've got to do the elbow thing now and all that kind of stuff. Lead well, everyone, and live well. Live submitted to authority over you. Rest well in the Lord Jesus. Resist the adversary well. Hope well in all that God has promised for us. And today, stand well in grace. Let's pray. Father, you know, I'm just appreciative this morning of Peter, just thinking about his life and, you know, and, uh, you know, just my final comments just a minute ago about uh, the possibility of him 
actually going to look for John Mark, not just, not just pouring into John Mark's life, but actually going to look for him to rescue him. What a thought. Lord, just, all this just makes me appreciate Peter. Lord, his faithfulness in spite his stumblings. Lord, it's just a, that's a, that's an, a, a testimony to us, Lord, that when we stumble, we can get up. When we fall down, we can get up and we can continue and we can be faithful. Lord, I pray that you'd help us all to, to just do well at all the things that you desire of us. We truly love you. Truly thank you, Jesus, that we can cast all our cares upon you. And, and a lot of us have cares, Lord, from, from COVID to family to jobs to finances to the future. Lord, uh, we have cares. And this morning we cast them on you. Thank you for knitting our hearts together as a church family. Uh, Lord, we, uh, we pray that you'd continue to do that. Grow our love for one another in spite we're not necessarily greeting one another with affection, but Lord, grow our affection for each other. Grow our love for each other. Lord, I'd like to pray for Martha and her team as they leave tomorrow to, uh, to go and, uh, and do the shoebox ministry, help out there with that kindness to little children around the world. I pray that you'd bless them and keep them keep them safe. And then I want to pray for Joyce and her aunt who has been taken to the hospital possibly with a stroke. And I pray that you would, I can't remember her name, but Lord, you know her name. And we just ask you for her, Lord, that you would help her to survive, to survive this. And we continue to pray for Wayne. Lord, thank you that he's better, but he's got a ways to go. We pray for his hand to completely heal. Again, Lord, thank you for all your kindnesses and your goodness towards us. And we pray this prayer because Jesus is our king and because, as we sang earlier, he is risen and alive. And because of him, we too shall rise to reign with you forever. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to Pastor Jimmy at baconscastle.com. Also, check out our website at baconscastle.com to get to know us and see what God is doing locally here in Surrey. Be blessed. Thank you.